1: Next week, we will remember the life and work of Martin Luther King Jr., who died 52 years ago this year. It's also, of course, a time to reflect on the state of race relations within our own country. Outside of the church, many of the biggest headlines of the past decade focused on police brutality, starting with Michael Brown's death in 2014 and the subsequent Black Lives Matter movement. In the political world, lawmakers have passed legislation addressing the U.S.'s mass incarceration problem. Both of these are issues disproportionately felt by the African-American community. What's happening within the American church? In 2019, Barna published a report where they asked practicing Christians how the church should respond in light of the United States' 400-year history of injustices against African-Americans. 33% of white practicing Christians said there was nothing the church could do. In contrast, 33% of black practicing Christians believe the church should repair the damage. One of those efforts has been the One Race Movement, a group that has brought more than 500 Atlanta-area pastors of all ethnic and racial backgrounds together in the name of reconciliation and revival. In 2018, the movement hosted a worship service at Stone Mountain, a state park in Georgia, where Confederate heroes Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, and Stonewall Jackson are etched in granite. And I'm just going to read a little bit from the reporting we did on this event. At the event, attendees had the opportunity to learn more about the work of Be the Bridge, an organization which facilitates local discussions of race issues in churches, and the ANN Campaign, a group which seeks to help urban Christians politically organize. All attendees were invited to sign the Atlanta Covenant, a five-part declaration against racism drafted in advance by leaders. So this movement continues today, and it grew out of conversations between white and black Christians started by Bishop Garland Hunt. We wanted to do a deeper dive into the history and current impact of One Race. Today is January 15th, and you are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss major cultural events. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today.
2: And I'm Tim Dalrymple, president and CEO of Christianity Today.
1: So, Tim, I know you're still kind of new to the whole podcast thing, but But a babe, but a babe. One of the things that we do is we give visceral reactions called a gut check. And it's a chance for people to hear how we really feel about something. And obviously race relations are a huge thing to respond to. So I was just thinking, I personally just wanted to tell people a little bit about one way that CT has worked on this. And then you have a personal relationship with one race that you could talk about during that time. On the CT end of things, I was one of the people that was fortunate, along with a couple, you know, almost two dozen other colleagues from our company to go down to Al- Alabama last year as part of a civil rights trip. So we went to Montgomery, Birmingham and Selma and had the chance to visit some of the museums there, talk to people who participated in various parts of the civil rights movement, which is always really amazing when you get the chance to talk to people who were actually there. In fact, one of the guys that we met, he had participated in this children's march that had happened in Birmingham, which was exactly what it sounded like when a bunch of young people came out to protest. And he told us about how he had lied to his parents about his participation in that and only told his dad within the past five years. So that was crazy just to get some of those really real life anecdotes and to have the chance to process this collectively with staff. Yeah. I guess people that want to know more about it, we actually posted something online about it and I'll put that in the show notes in case people are interested. So talk to us about you and One Race.
2: First of all, I I grew up out in the Bay Area of California, which is a deeply diverse community. During my college years, I had the opportunity to attend a predominantly African-American church. Just was was blown away by the spiritual vitality of the place. And a friend and I went every week and and we began to rally others and to bring them. And it became a very large contingent of, of Stanford students who were going to this church in East Palo Alto called Abundant Life. During my seminary years, I was a chaplain for a prison congregation in Trenton, New Jersey, Trenton State, or New Jersey State Prison in Trenton, technically. And that was a predominantly African-American, 70%, uh, African-American, about 20% Hispanic. And I continued to minister there for about three years. I I was effectively a a black church pastor for three years, which was an an extraordinary experience. Learned a, a great deal. I think my eyes were opened by those experiences. These days, you know, I, I don't it, – you know, it's kind of a gut check. What do I feel? I, I don't have objective data for this, but it feels as though racial division, racial uh, tension is as powerful today as it has been at any time in my lifetime. So I was, was deeply interested when living in Atlanta. We learned about the One Race movement. And, and Joyce and I, my wife and I, we, we had some reservations at first, to be honest, as we heard about One Race and their, this big gathering that they were having at Stone Mountain. And I can, I can share those things later. But I'll just say that as I got to learn more about One Race, as I got to know Josh and Hazen, our guests, I was deeply impressed with the thoughtfulness of their approach. And so, we're bringing them on really as one example of how one community is is addressing racial wounds, racial division, there a, a very complicated racial history within that community. And we hope to get a get a a good grip on on the story of One Race itself, but also a bit of a of a ten thousand foot view. So we'll be asking Josh and Hazen about, you know, what other movements are they aware of, other creative ways in which Christians are attempting to address the religious divide?
1: Hi, guys. Hey, we're glad to be here. Well, we're glad that you're here. I'm wondering, would you guys feel comfortable introducing each other and telling us a little bit about what you've learned about each other over the years?
3: Absolutely. So Josh and I have been good friends over the last three years. We were friends even before we started working together on One Race.
1: And this is uh, Hazen speaking, I'm
3: assuming. Yes, this say. is Hazen speaking, and I'm a white guy. Okay. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> and so in 2016, we started, I believe we connected over uh, an event that we were doing here in Atlanta that was a large evangelistic gathering that we were doing in the heart of our city. And Josh was the main mobilizer, and I was a like a high-level volunteer, and we just became good friends. Uh, we hosted prayer meetings in white and black churches for that outreach event, and just uh, got to know each other and got to have kind of conversations around the issue of race, even a little bit at that time. Josh is just an incredible uh, man of God, an incredible thinker. You know, he graduated with a master of divinity from uh, Old Roberts University. He actually kind of moonlights as a teacher in a couple different institutions. And uh, is that the hopefully the accurate way to say it, as well as the work that he does here at One Race and has also served as a pastor in the Assemblies of God denomination? The, the thing that I'd probably admire the most about him is the way that he loves and cares for his family. As you get to know a person, you just get to know about their history. And there are things, and I think this is true for me as well, where we're both working to reverse negative things that are in our family's generational past. And I would say that Josh is a person that has worked against the circumstances that were dealt to him in his family of origin and where he grew up to take his the discipleship of his family and the love that he has for his wife and the ways he's raising and caring for them. That's the thing that obviously, you know, it's easy to be impressive on a platform. But the thing that I love the most about Josh is I know him the a secret place of prayer and in his love for his family. He's changing the generational trajectory of his family for generations to come. And that's probably the thing I love the most about this guy.
4: You know, if if I didn't have—and this is Josh speaking—if I didn't have so much brown skin, I would be flush red. If I were a white guy, <laughs> I would be flush red right now. Man, my friend just—he just—he just said some pretty. I didn't think you knew. I didn't think <laughs> you knew all these great things about. me. <laughs> I owe you twenty bucks after this. Um, <laughs> no, really, it's been a great joy to to run with Hazen. He's an interesting guy. There are some people in life that you can't quite box them in, right? The second that you you, you try to cage him, you know here's his other facet about them and, and, and hazen that that would definitely be true of an Atlanta native already that's unusual because, mm-hmm. like me, most of us migrate to Atlanta. Atlanta natives are a <laughs> rare we're a rare breed a very rare breed. but Hazen is is a sharp individual and could could succeed. And any sphere that he decided to approach, but he has decided to give his life to to being a missionary, to being an intercessor here at the International House of Prayer, just an incredible man. It's been a joy to run with him. There are very few white guys that I've encountered on my journey that that are as inclined on racial issues as Hazen. And it's just a great joy to, to run with someone who's as empathetic and informed as Hazen is. And so uh, the last few years have just been a joy.
2: Honestly, I think the relationship between the two of you has been really core to what God has done through the One Race movement. And I'm glad that our listeners get to get a sense of that relationship here. So thank you guys. Could you walk us, because you're not listed as the the founders of the One Race Movement, but you're co-directors, right? So we're talking to Hayes and Stevens and Josh Clemens, and they're the co-directors of the One Race Movement. Now, I think you were involved very early on, but there were also others like Billy Humphrey and Bishop Garland Hunt. So can you tell us a little bit about how it got started? Don't don't take us as far as the the Stone Mountain event yet, but if you could give us the narrative for how uh, this really began to gather momentum, that would be fantastic.
3: Some of it goes back to what I referenced in Josh and I first coming together in that evangelistic work that we were doing in the city. As we started to look at what does it look like to bring a city together around just sharing the gospel, and Josh can speak to this, the racial divide was something that inhibited people from coming together. I mean, it it kept people from coming together and sharing the gospel to put it to put it frankly it kept uh, african american churches from coming and being a part of the event because the evangelist that was hosting the event was a, a white person and i think it also hindered white people f- from coming because the person was mostly known for his work in africa and so it almost felt like you couldn't win in that situation because of the depth of the divisions and as you guys pointed out in the gut check you know you had the in this kind of 2016 to present day time period, unprecedented, some cases, civil unrest, some cases, protests, some cases, just a wide variety of things that have really pushed, actually, serendipitously, our very first one race gathering was two weeks after Charlottesville. And I think very much because of that, and because people had a, a felt need as a result of Charlottesville, you know, it was August 25th of 2018 was our very first meeting that we ever did. It was 2 weeks after Charlottesville and it was because of I think that event that we had like over 1200 people come out to our very first gathering ever. That was a public public facing gathering. So I'd say it was kind of out of the milieu of that time frame and then out of the felt need that we were experiencing in ministry. We said, man, the the church is unprepared to lead in the area of race. We're li- really lagging behind the culture and even being able to engage and talk about it, much less provide biblical answers for a lot of the pain that is this deeply felt pain that's mm-hmm. surfacing in the culture. To make a long story short, a group of pastors, including Billy Humphrey, who's been m- m- my leader in ministry for now over over 13 years, Bishop Garland Hunt, Scott and Tammy Free, who run an urban ministry, another and another African-American couple all of us gathered together and we were going to do an event together. And somebody said in the midst of that event, you know, we don't just need unity around an event. We need a, we need a movement of relationship. And it was kind of out of that seed bed of thought in that group that was gathering together, the beginnings of one race emerged. And then as Josh came on staff and we began to work together in operations towards the stone mountain event that you mentioned, we just realized not only the depth of need, but also the unprecedented opportunity that the cultural moment, presented for us to help people who were really, everywhere we went, it was like, I've been praying into this. I need help in knowing how to address this within my church or within our spiritual community. One of the things we found is not a lot of pastors have resources on who they can trust to help inform how to talk about these things, or even how to pray into them, you
4: know, and how, how to have language. Just as we began to talk about this one race movement, and I was informed about about Billy and Garland's and... The whole team's plan around around creating a movement. I was actually pastoring at a church, an Assemblies of God church. You know, the Assemblies of God has an interesting history, if we're just going to be candid about it. A very tense racial history. So I found myself situated with the Assemblies and facing some upheaval there. And then also, it's about the time that many of the police shootings were taking place of of unarmed black men. There was a lot of unrest in the nation around those things. And it just seemed like it was the right moment for a different sound, for a gospel approach, for the church to really emerge as the leader on this conversation, really beginning to, to declare righteousness and call for justice in many of these situations. And so I was overjoyed when I got the call that something like one race would be happening and even more excited when I felt the invitation to to be a part and to support it in the way that I have.
2: So this is something that really long before the Stone Mountain event, it's something that was percolating and relationships were forming and we're building and there was a lot of preparatory work for the Stone Mountain event. Now I'll tell you being at a church in Atlanta at the time, I Joyce and I began to see information about this upcoming event, one race going to be held at Stone Mountain. And you guys are dear brothers, I'm just going to be honest with you and and let you guys kind of respond cuz I'm sure I'm not the only person who felt this way. But when we first saw the title one race, we thought, well that that sounds naive. That sounds like something that a white person would say. Or, you know, it sounds Pollyanna esque, not dealing with just all the complexities of uh, racial difference and racial division. And then an event at Stone Mountain. Don't they know the history of Stone Mountain? That this was a place really central to the Ku Klux Klan and uh, so forth. And as I came to learn later, you guys had thought deeply about those things. But for anybody who's kind of feeling those, that kind of discomfort, I'd love to kind of get your, your response to that. So maybe you can share the narrative of building that movement at Stone Mountain or, or building toward that event at Stone Mountain and share kind of how do, how do, you, how do you respond when people share some of those uh, anxieties over the name or, or about having an event there?
4: You know what? As a black man, I typically share with them I felt the same way. It feels, at first blush, to be absent from the conversation, to be uninformed about the tensions presently, to be uninformed about, about the way that we are supposed to embrace diversity. It seems to have been thought of, as Tim said, by a white guy or a white person. Yeah, as I considered the name and considered our journey, the truth is, is that we really are, I say this, and then I'm going to backpedal a little bit, we really are one race, now, with that being said, one race is—it's—it's it's not a real construct; it's a false construct created here in the West for the purpose of, of oppressing some and exalting others. Secondly, we've all been created in the image and likeness of God, and so with that being said, I take the approach that we've all been created in the image and likeness of God, which makes us all equal. It makes us all same with that respect. Now, we can't gloss over the pain of the past. We can't gloss over the 400 years of oppression here in America. We can't gloss over the racial tension that really does exist and the problems that exist. But we can call people together around the gospel that calls us one, that calls us a new humanity, that says that we're created in the image and likeness of God. We can call people together around that and really cast a vision for us, caring for one another and empathizing with each other's pain. And I'm going to kick the ball to Hazen here to to kind of share just a little bit about about how that played into into the Stone Mountain initiative.
3: You know, there were a couple different strands that kind of fed into us choosing Stone Mountain as the culminating event for really what was a year of of gathering people around this idea. And so it has to be noted that we didn't just say, okay, we're going to do an event at Stone Mountain and we're going to market that event. We actually put a lot of work into, we built 17 pastors groups across the city um, once a month, leading up into the event that engaged like probably 250 different churches. And as you mentioned at the introduction of this time, like over 500 pastors kind of in the culminating gathering on top of Stone Mountain. And we would invite them to do their pastor's group, and then to do these regional prayer gatherings where they brought their local churches together, and then we gathered the city at Stone Mountain. And part of the reason we felt like it was really uh, prophetically significant to gather at Stone Mountain is because in 1915, the history of the Klan that you mentioned, the very first cross was publicly burned on top of Stone Mountain ever in history. From that event, the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan, and it was inspired by a film called Birth of the Nation, and that event by a handful of Klansmen on Thanksgiving Eve, that event was led by a former Methodist Episcopal minister. And so when we started to tell pastors in our city this history, that and for those unfamiliar with Stone Mountain, it's the physical high place over our city. It is about 800, it rises about 800 feet above the the terrain around us and can be seen visibly from, I, I would That whole season, I would drive my daughter to school, and I would see Stone Mountain in the distance, and we would pray for the gathering at the end of the year that was coming there. And so it's the physical high place in our city. It's a historical place. It's the largest Confederate memorial in in the world. It's also the largest tourist attraction in the state of Georgia. So it's a place with a dark history, but also present cultural significance. You know, biblically, whenever reformers would come in, the first thing that they would do is they would go to the high place and they would remove the poles and they would take down the idols. And we felt like what we were doing at Stone Mountain is we were calling church leaders to go to a place where spiritually an idol was erected over 100 years ago and to tear down that idol and say, this is not what our city stands for anymore.
1: So you had this particular event at Stone Mountain, which I event is kind of a generic word, but there was worship and there were speakers and thousands of people. Showed up. What are some ways that you guys heard after the fact about things that you, people saw God doing or where God was at work on that day?
4: There are several testimonies that I'd like to highlight just as we consider the day and how it impacted many folks around the city. As a minority, I'm going to tell you one of the things that I heard repeatedly from minority brothers and sisters was that I'm grateful that this many believers in the city of Atlanta are concerned a, a, about race. That this is something that we should be contending for, that we should be contending for breakthrough in. Gosh, I, I can't tell you how many, how many brothers have told me about wounds from their past, about discrimination, about racism, about in its various forms, about how this has impacted them in their lifetime and how they, they felt a touch from the Lord to forgive, to, to be healed, to, to really advance toward wholeness because of this event. And then from a white perspective, I I have heard many share that I was apathetic before being a part of the movement or before coming to this event. And it really catapulted me to grow and to to lean in and to understand more about the pain of the past, about the pain of the present, to understand more about about what my Hispanic, my African-American, my Asian brothers and sisters might be experiencing. And geez, that th- those are the moments that we that we that we long for. Now, is that a complete transformation? No, but it is the beginning of one. It's the the on ramp to the journey, and, and there are probably hundreds of testimonies like that, if not thousands, that we've heard the last few months.
3: I think one of the things that it, it's difficult to quantify, but when people read and make a commitment, which we've several hundred pastors and leaders make a commitment to take a public stand against racism in any form when they encounter it in their ministries, and you ask people to make that commitment, you know, there are probably going to be various various levels of follow-through, of course. And again, it's hard to quantify. But one of the things that really was, I think, a potent fruit coming out of that, and we've seen people make good on, is the commitment to go back to their church, go back to their community, and actually make a difference and bring, to live a reconciled life from their personal life to their corporate life in their church, and then to stand against racism in its various forms. And we have one of our one race groups actually make a public response to a controversy in a local area here in Atlanta, where a, a city official came out and said, you know, that we are not going to hire a, a public servant because they're African American, because our community is not ready for that. They kind of said that publicly, and then they all, a public statement and then they also made a public statement that they didn't think interracial marriage was biblical and they kind of in committee hearing. And honestly, all across Georgia, there are, are people in positions of leadership and government that have those have those kinds of views. But a group of local pastors, you know, wrote a letter basically expressing their desire for this person to repent of that view. And the person was saying, Hey, I'm a Christian. I believe biblical things. I think interracial marriage is not biblical. You know, it seems like a, a low hanging fruit, obviously. It seems like the natural thing that we should do as Christians. But all of us need discipleship. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. I, I think what one race a big part of the fruit of one race is we're discipling pastors and leaders in biblical truth around race and inviting them to take clear biblical stands on these things, especially in response to places where in our government, in our society, in our churches, a lot of times there's are confusion. And because of the strength of some of these guys' public stands, there was a pastor that was in Columbus, Georgia, that was a part of what we did that unfortunately was removed from his church by, by his elders because of what a clear public stand he took on the issue of race. So people taking a bold stand out of these commitments, and I think when people come to a gathering, make those kinds of commitments, and then you see kind of the aftershock or the reverberation in organization and in communities, you know people took those commitments seriously.
2: For our listeners, you can go to oneracemovement.com and learn more about the One Race Movement. There's also a link there to the Atlanta Covenant, which is what Hazen is describing. I think it, that's at actually at theatlantacovenant.com, although, again, you can find the link at oneracemovement.com. And uh, it's a pretty extraordinary statement, and I'm sure a lot of thought and, and effort went into crafting that and, and building support around that. Now, if I recall correctly, I don't remember the exact story, uh, gentlemen, but there was there was some story of it was either somebody who had been involved in the Klan or or was a descendant of someone who had been involved with the Klan, meeting with descendants of people who had suffered at the hands of the Klan. Am I remembering that wrongly, or is that a story that you can share, something that took place there at Stone Mountain?
4: So on top of Stone Mountain, we kicked the, the event off with really naming the sin, right? The sin of supremacy, the sin of racism, and describing it—that is the first step—is is calling it by name, truth-telling about it, and then as an act to, to counter it, to, to begin the process of, of healing and, and uh, transformation. There, we invited Rose Simmons and Anthony from Charleston. They lost loved ones at the at the Charleston Massacre when Dylan Roof went into the historic. African American, our African Methodist Episcopal Church there in Charleston, and and killed several of the members there, including the pastor, here just a few years back. As one could imagine, has created a lot of pain, a lot of angst, a lot of turmoil, but also exposed a lot of tension that that lied under the surface. Well, you fast forward to to Stone Mountain, and we invited. Rose and Anthony to join us there on top of the mountain. Anthony lost his wife there. Rose lost her father there. And it was just a a significant retelling of the of the story of what took place there in in Charleston. And then we have a friend here who is a relative of Bedford Forrest, who was the founder of the clan many, many years ago. And he's the I believe four generations, four or five generations removed his grandson. He came to the mountain with it in his heart to to repent, to repent on behalf of white supremacists who have afflicted so much pain on this family. And then also as a proxy for the pain that, that supremacy and racism has caused to the African American community at large. It was just an incredible moment. I mean, my goodness, it it just I don't know, I don't even quite have words to describe the moment. Anthony and Rose have made great strides in their healing process, but as they shared privately with us, it it still gives them great pain. They lost loved ones that day. But to have someone who is a relative of, of the founder of the clan come and, and repent and apologize and ask for forgiveness was a significant moment of healing for them as well. And so it's just a, a very special time there at Stone Mountain.
0: Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com.
1: Hazen, I had heard you talk about discipleship, and I think that's an important factor. Oftentimes in Christian circles, we'll talk about things being a mountaintop experience. This was a literal mountaintop experience of feeling strong feelings of, euphoria and mission and really feeling God's presence in these places. And then you physically, in this case, leave the mountain. There's not necessarily the same energy, drive, community support, all that type of stuff that you felt while you were present in that place. So post-2018, can you talk to us about some of the, maybe the programs that you've been trying to initiate or the follow-up in order to kind of really build lasting change in people?
3: And, you know, something that we've seen even in the Word as we've kind of wrestled with how do you combine these catalytic events with transformation in the day in and day out? And I think anybody that leads a ministry that does things that are, in a certain sense, mountaintop experiences or conferences or, you know, trying to catalyze their congregation or local community, but then how do we see follow through will sympathize with with the tension that we're talking about. I found great comfort that in some ways it's a biblical model for people to have mountaintop experiences. I mean, even the idea of a mountaintop experience comes from, you know, Moses going up on the mountain, having experience with God, and then coming down and having to sort through all the mess of what he experienced on the mountain amongst the people. For us, we kind of saw, you know, in Scripture, like God calls the people to congregate in feasts and in different seasons and in different times for a corporate experience. And then he sends them home for like the, you know, traditional worship in the synagogue and commands both. He commands season of assembly and he commands the weekly Sabbath for the kind of infiltration of the daily life. I feel like that for us is is the picture that we have. We have times when we want this movement to gather, where we can hear, hear from God together from His Word as we do teaching and preaching and worship and prayer. But then we want people to take those realities back into their local community and to live out the values that we're proclaiming, whether it's in a conference setting or a large public gathering like Stone Mountain. How do we do that effectively? This is, the, I think, the, the, where the rubber meets the road of discipleship. And I think the places where One Race Movement is really being able to equip people is not so much in the discipleship of congregations, but the discipleship of leaders that lead those congregations, giving them language, paradigm. And honestly, one of the number one things we do is try and create a safe place where people can express the things especially, I think, white evangelical leaders express the concerns or the issues or the questions that they have that they're afraid to say in another setting because they're afraid they'll be labeled a racist or ignorant. And I can just say time and time again, getting to sit down, have lunch. We probably had lunch with 150 pastors you know, in this last year. And so you know, we're having three or four different face-to-face meetings. And in those meetings, the context a lot of times is, okay, we're doing a gathering, doing a prayer meeting, but in order to get us a place where we can lead publicly, we're having to have discipleship conversations all along the way on the topic of race. I would say that's been in terms of how do we have impact on the local church and, or on people's day-to-day lives. When you have a leader in a church that was afraid to stand against racism or afraid to talk about racial issues or had offense in their heart, but now they were able to forgive or they were able to air that. That area of uncertainty and come to come to a biblical conviction. That's that's the place where you have now a transformed leader that can transform communities.
4: Yeah, and if I can just chime in there just a bit, what Hazen is 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 speaking of here is is that we do these catalytic events, but they all have to point to process. They all have to point to discipleship. The only way that you can rid racism, indifference, apathy, all of the above within the race, culture, space, is through discipleship. There has to be a transformation that takes place. And the quickest and easiest way that, that the church can oh, break out of her, her apathy, break out of the, the mold that we've been cast in, is to, is to begin on this journey of discipleship, this journey of transformation. And you do that with leaders who go back to their congregations and lead their folks into a greater knowledge, a greater understanding. of what it it means to be be one, of what it means to be reconciled. It's been quite the journey to walk with leaders and to hear their stories and to to be a friend and, and sometimes to offer correction and insight as to why they may be operating in ignorance or what have you. But that's been a a joy for the journey.
1: So I'm really curious, you know, you are from for outsiders who are listening to this, they're thinking, okay, you're in the South and this has got to be a place where these conversations are really hard. We've heard people sometimes shut down to these conversations, maybe accusing people who want to talk about race of something like cultural Marxism or having a liberal agenda. And I'm curious. If you when you're doing this type of work how are you framing it as such a way to kind of take away maybe some of that defensiveness or concern
3: Issues around diversity issues around equality of peoples those are biblical ideas those aren't liberal or conservative ideas the idea that and I think when we go back to the gospel message and the ultimate culmination of the gospel is that every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, we are all going to worship the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Like, you better not be anti-Semitic, because the one that you're going to worship, you better not be racist, because the person—because Jesus isn't a white man, he or Jesus isn't a black man, you know, he— he has, in my, in my view of what the scripture tells us about the person of Jesus, he's a descendant of David, King David, and he is going to, in, in heaven, receive the worship and praise of all creation and of every people, tribe, and nation. And so in some ways, I feel like by rooting out racism, we're preparing the bride and preparing people for the realities of heaven. And I think when you frame and approach your ideas, not in political terms, but in terms of, of what the Bible teaches about race and about culture and about the kingdom of God, because most evangelical believers, we're all agreeing that the, the word of God is is our, our frame of reference and our plumb line. But there's a lot of amazing truth in there about how we're to love one another, about how we're to approach the subject of race, the spirit in which we're supposed to approach it, and how we're to forgive one another. And we... Take a lot of those those you know biblical concepts on character, but we frame them within this conversation on race. And it's incredible how Christians will agree that you're supposed to be humble, but then we start to get into a discussion, uh, you know, on race, and we forget about humility. And it's also like we have to remind each other these things are not separated. <laughs> the biblical teaching of humility is not separated from the the biblical teaching on race. Like those things all come together as a package, so that we can be a witness in the public sphere as well as in our private lives.
2: Thank you for sharing with us the narrative of what you guys did in 2018 with the Stone Mountain event and some of the follow up to that. Tell us about 2019, which was a year that had a a particular kind of resonance when it comes to America and race. So what was some of the uh, where does that resonance come from and what were some of the things that you guys planned and carried out over the course of 2019?
4: Well, Tim, I tell you, 2019 marked the 400th year since slavery was enacted here in America. It marked the 400th year since the White Lion, the container carrying kidnapped Africans, stolen Africans, arrived on the shores of the American colonies, bringing these Africans to meet their destiny of, of becoming slaves. And this began a dark night in America that we are still trying to. To recover from it started a two hundred and fifty year journey on uh, of, of slavery men owning men and and women owning women this idea that that to be black or to be African is to be inferior it, it started the ball rolling on racism as we know it here in America and we thought that this was the perfect opportunity for the church to to humble herself and to and to lean in and to to realize that the past really is still present with us, that many of the problems and the tensions that we're experiencing today are a direct result of the last 400 years. And so we oriented very heavily to that anniversary, August 2019 being that anniversary. And so what we, what we did, and I'll give you the, the complete journey here, is that we did kind of a listening tour Throughout Atlanta, where we did nine leadership roundtables in different parts of the city, casting vision for what we were wanting to do in August of 2019, which I'm coming to, but also wanting to hear how racial tensions, how the political landscape, how how leaders were leading through this tumultuous time. And the discoveries from that were were quite impressive, which brought us clear to to August 2019. And we kicked the month off with two conferences, one called the 400 Leadership Summit, and that was specific to, to pastors and leaders here in Atlanta. And then the 400 Conference, which was open to the public, believers at large. What we did at these two events was really told the story of the last 400 years, shared of the pain and the effects and how it's created, Crippled race relations. The irony here is that you can go to work on Monday and work with a black person, a white person, a Hispanic person, an Asian person, but then on Sunday morning, we typically retreat to our white churches, our black churches, our rich churches, our poor churches, etc. And that all has a root to it. And we were pointing back to 1619 with the beginning of slavery here in this country. It was quite an incredible conference. We had leaders like Dr. Crawford Loritz and Dr. Soon Chan Ra and Brian Loritz and Leonce Crump and Pasha Morse, who actually couldn't be with us that day, unfortunately, she was ill. Kendra Moman, Dr. Kendra Moman, it was quite an incredible conference where we where we really took time to lean in and to diagnose the problem, but we didn't stop there. We wanted to prescribe something leaders as we move forward, trying to navigate the choppy waters of race and church. We followed that conference up with a 21-day fast, calling leaders to pray and to fast, which brought us to August 25th, which we call the Day of Remembrance. And we reached about 50,000 believers on that Sunday morning through leaders getting into their pulpits and preaching the same message all throughout the city. And that basic message was, it's time for us as a church to lament the pain of the past, to lament these 400 years and the implications from them, and then also to repent of that sin so that we can begin to heal as, as the church, as a nation, and the church of Jesus Christ can emerge as the leaders in this conversation. It was quite the impactful month.
2: Great. And to make the connection to Martin Luther King Day, the event, the leadership event that you were describing early in August was held at Ebenezer Baptist, right?
4: Historic Ebenezer Baptist. It was quite incredible to be on those sacred grounds.
2: Yeah, the church where Martin Luther King pastored. And we heard from the the present pastor of Ebenezer Baptist, and he delivered a really powerful oration. So I would love to ask you guys, because... Even the language of racial reconciliation, I think, has come under some attack. And, you know, there there are people, I think, in particular within the African-American community who become somewhat uncomfortable with that language or who feel that, you know, prior to reconciliation, the white church has a lot of preparatory work to do. So I'd love to get you guys' thoughts on those things I really feel that the power of that that concern and that that critique that there's just a lot of learning about the story and and coming to some sense of ownership and repentance over it among the white church that needs to precede any any kind of real or lasting reconciliation uh, so if you guys could speak to that
4: as a a model for transformation we've kind of come up with a three step process that we that we prescribed and 2019, and we'll hold fast to you in the the years to come, it's know the story, own the story, change the story. Mm -hmm. Know the story of the past, own it through lamenting, through repenting, and then seek to to be advocate for for change, for redemption, for justice uh, in these things. And to drive right at your question, I think that the white church does have quite a distance to go with regards to that. I would say that through humility, if we're going to see transformation happen, we've got to begin to listen. We've got to begin to engage and enter into the pain of another, to enter into the pain of our collective narrative, really knowing the story of individuals, knowing the corporate story, and then own it. There's a part that we all play in this and how we're complicit in the impact of of race and racism in our daily lives, as well as on the church corporately, so that we can see the story change for generations to come. And so if I were going to say something to, to the white church, I would say, get invested in the story. It's time to listen. It's time to to hear from African American brothers and sisters. It's time to hear from Hispanic brothers and sisters. It's time to hear from Asian brothers and sisters and how the story of race and the effects of race has impacted them. And then secondly, to be invested in that history so that we can own and ultimately change the story for generations to come.
1: I would also add in there Native Americans as well. They have interesting things to say on this topic.
4: Absolutely. And and I've I'm sorry. I'm talking generally here, but no, I'm- no,
1: no. I, I'm just saying that is something that has been on my mind. So you're fine,
4: Tim, Tim. Can I ask a question with respect to with respect
3: to your question? Was was part of what you were asking actually the specific word of reconciliation or language of reconciliation with regard to kind of where some people have grown weary in that or skeptical of it? Was that what you were? what you're at?
2: So i I've heard from. African-American brothers and sisters who feel like, you know, we've been standing on the bridge for a long time and the white church just really hasn't met us here. Or who feel that they'll have events where people kind of talk a good game and yet the actual reconciliation that follows is, is lacking. And so they just feel tired. Feel like, I, I've been working at this for a long time. White congregations, white pastors seem eager to kind of strike a pose to make a public demonstration of their concern over racial matters, but when it comes to kind of the, the long and hard work of relationship building and confessing and reconciliation, that that has been lacking. So that that's where my question was coming from.
3: And honestly, you know, especially among our African-American brothers in this as we do this work, that is an ongoing critique that is valid and very painful when we hear it because a lot of times it's hard in people's hearts to the conversation we're trying to have around unity and reconciliation. And I think what I would say to that is that first that there's some legitimacy to that, but we also have to guard ourselves from cynicism. All of us do the mentality that because something didn't meet up to the talk around it, maybe it wasn't worthwhile to do in the first place. It wasn't worth endeavoring to do, you know, and, and we sat with even African-American leaders who said, you know, I, I'm going to have the courage because I feel God inviting me to to engage in this conversation again even though last time around the backroom conversations about reconciliation didn't match the public proclamations and I remember an older African American leader who had engaged with you know racial reconciliation in the 80s and the 90s he said I don't know if I want to do this again because when I did it before the backroom proclamations didn't match the public the public declarations and it hurt you know and i think it's probably the, that's the same kind of thing that, that you've heard Tim, from your from your friends and i think what we have to do when i hear that the honesty of it and the realness of it is i go god don't let that be me i go i want the reality of the way i live my life to reflect these values and i want to call other people to it but i also want to know man if if i don't do it all perfectly it doesn't mean it's not worth trying to do you know, if we fall short of the mark, I, I'd rather I'd rather fall short trying to reconcile the church because I believe that's the the heart and the will of God. and that's why I do it, not even necessarily because I'm convinced I'll be successful.
2: So what, what are some other examples out there that you guys might be aware of? The One Race Movement has largely focused on Atlanta. And of course, I'm, I'm sure you'd love to see similar movements in other places. But, but I'm hoping, as people who are pouring an extraordinary amount of time and effort into this, that, that you're also aware of, of other efforts, other ways in which the church is attempting to take the lead when it comes to racial reconciliation. And are you aware of some other efforts out there?
4: So top of mind, I'm going to highlight two. Latasha Morrison with Be the Bridge my goodness i am just a fan of her work i'm a fan of her book i really believe that she has a has written a manifesto of sorts through her be the bridge curriculum as well as her book on how the white church can lean in and understand And journey with people of color well, and I I don't think I'm doing a disservice to the way that she would say that, but also how African Americans, Hispanics, Asian, Native folks can all lean in as well to to really pursue this idea of reconciliation. He's done groups across the U.S. and around the world on this topic, and it's just powerful, powerful stuff. Secondly, I would point to, to Jamar Tisby, Jamar Tisby with Pass the Mic as well as his podcast I believe it's called Pass the Mic as well and he just does a masterful job of leaning into into the pain into the problem giving lots of insight as to as to where the church is missing it where the pain and the tension lies and then also his book Color of Compromise really lays out the the history of racism in the American church and It's just powerful stuff. And so those are two organizations that I'm a pretty big fan of and and are gospel-centered and just have great appreciation and admiration for those two individuals.
1: Great. We will post links to all of that type of stuff on our website so people can get a sense of where to look in those things, find more about that stuff. My last question for you guys is I, I know that this movement beyond just racial unity has also encouraged Christians from different denominations to partner together. I know that Josh, you said you're involved with Assemblies of God and that Hazen, I know you worked with International International House of Prayer, but I'm wondering how you've seen this become more than just part of those ministries and denominations and flow outside of that.
3: That's been really one of the coolest things is we can honestly say we've had not just participation, but financial contributions, leaders who came and spoke and participated from a huge swath of, of denominational and non-denominational churches in our city. So from Presbyterian, Methodist, Methodist. Baptist, Anglican, you know, just a a really wide variety of evangelical churches and assemblies of God, Church of God. And it's just been incredible to see how, because I think all these denominations, there are people that recognize the cultural moment that we're in and that the church needs to speak with clarity and biblical truth on the issue of race. Everywhere we go, we find leaders in in every denomination that say, you know, this is really important. Because as Tim highlighted earlier, I think we live in one of the greatest times of racial tension in my lifetime. And I'm 35 years old, so probably the last 30 years or so. People recognize it's an important moment. You know, and one of the things we haven't shared as much in this interview but I think it's worth bringing in is, you know, we call people to prayer as a first response. To the injustice that we're seeing, that we think that the hard work of transformation, discipleship, and then ultimately cultural transformation, it begins in the place of prayer with the transformation of our own heart. I just find that when we, we choose that as the starting place, intimacy with God and connection with the heart of God, connection with biblical truth, we find a lot of people can say, Yes, I, I want to see transformation and change, and I'm willing to start in my own relationship with God by bringing these, these things in an intentional way um, before God in the place of prayer.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, you guys, for your extremely thoughtful responses. For anyone who has feedback for us, you can send us an email. We're at podcast at or we are at Podcasts on Twitter. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, when everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy recently and tell us a little bit more about themselves. Unfortunately, Tim had to leave, so I will be going first. My precious moment this week is actually the book that I'm reading. I feel like I've been telling everyone about it. It's fantastic. It's called The Hummingbird's Daughter. I don't know if either of you guys is familiar with A Hundred Years of Solitude. Did either of you guys read that?
4: I have not.
1: All right. Well, that book is known for being very epic in its scope. And this book is somewhat similar in about how epic it is about the authors, I believe, great-great-aunt or great-aunt who... And it, 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 I would say it, it has some of the magical realism that a book that like 500 years of, 100 years of solitude, wow, my brain is going crazy, 100 years of solitude has, but a, just a lot of love between the different characters. It's taken place in Mexico at the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s. And it has been a treat to just sit with the book that I really like. One of those books that you're like, it's 500 pages, but maybe it's actually not long enough. I'm appreciative about that. All right, Josh, can I pick on you to go?
4: I've got two boys. Langston is two and a half, and Duke will be one this Friday. This morning, I found myself weeping just over my my two boys and just how how the how the father, the relationship between myself and Father God, you know, you can find different glimpses of that beauty in the relationship between father and and their their offspring or a mother and their offspring. And it just was a a precious moment because I I find that my boys are, are curious about things. They get rambunctious about things. They get whatever it is that they're doing in the moment. And I find myself having to be patient with them or to correct or to rejoice or to encourage and really give affirmation to them and I just think about the father and how he responds to us the same way. And
1: do you have individual social media that you want to post people to?
4: I would point the the followership to to first the One Race Instagram at One Race ATL on Instagram, and then our Facebook page One Race Movement on Facebook. As well as you can check out my personal Instagram at This Is Josh Clemens, and then my Facebook page Josh Clemens as well.
1: Awesome. All right, Hazen.
4: So I
3: have a one of my best friends is uh, been on staff. We're in the same ministry together for the last 15 years. And he and his wife and his six children are getting ready to move to Africa this week. And so we got to pray for him and for his family on our service this past Sunday. It's been a dream of his for over a decade to to go as a missionary to the nations. He's constantly reading missionary biographies. His children are named after missionaries. And so just to see something that was such a deep desire in his heart finally come to pass was just a moment of uh, great joy. It was also bittersweet because we won't uh, see each other day to day. But just as I think back on this week, what was a precious moment—just getting to stand there with our spiritual family gathered around and praying, and knowing, okay, this is this is a moment he's waited for for a long time; it's coming to pass.
1: Awesome. Do you want to point people to any social media too? I have a website, HazenandHannah.com.
3: And if people like some of the messaging and things we've talked about, there are a few messages and videos. Our day of remembrance service that we mentioned is actually posted there as as well as some other content. And so HazenandHannah.com, that's just my first name and my wife's name. So Hazen, H-A-Z-E-N and Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H.com. And then Hazen Stevens on Facebook. Yeah. If you'd like to follow me, you can.
1: Awesome. So for people that want to follow me outside this podcast, they can do so at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is made possible by people who subscribe to Christianity Today magazine. We are always so thankful for you. And you can become a subscriber by going to orderct.com slash podcast. We're also very appreciative to everyone who rates and reviews the show. Thank you for going on to Apple Podcasts and doing that. You can find a podcast there or on Spotify or Overcast or Stitcher. We're going to go wherever you want to go. We are there. Podcast is produced by myself, and Matt Lindor. Our transcriptionist is Bunmi Ashola. We'll see you all next week. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive